Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. beautiful people and welcome to this week's episode of Sister Speak with Dr. Emma J. Church. That's me. Um, and I have an amazing guest here today and excited to hear her story for the first time. But we have been circling each other for some time uh, in this community in interesting ways. And I, I definitely want to kind of process that in front of you guys because I think it's kind of fun. But today I have Ashley Cheryl here with me to share her story. Um, there will be some content about abuse and assault and rape. And so, you know, that is just something for our listeners to be aware of. Um, just a content warning there. You know, have a friend listen with you, or you may choose not to listen to this episode. But as always, we are going to bring it home to the healing that can occur in the face of traumas. Um, the point here is not to get stuck. The point here is to be inspired by how women um, experience things that are unimaginable and are able to turn that uh, through this amazing alchemy of the heart into something beautiful. And Ashley is going to speak so well to that today. Um, so Ashley and I, you know, to my knowledge, have have been connected through social media. You know, we have similar things that we post about. And we've had messages here and there probably over the course of years. I want to say six, just as a random. Um, but Ashley, can you share a little bit about knowing me? This is what we were, we just mentioned this. I'm like, hey, we need to record about this. This is kind of funny. Yeah. Um. So I used to work for a friend of mine who had a cleaning company, and uh, we actually cleaned your house a few times. And so I, I mean, obviously you kind of get to know someone when you're cleaning their house. And I was always like, oh, her girls are so cute. And look at this decoration. Like, I loved it. I remember going home and telling my mom, like, we just cleaned this lady's house. And it is the cutest house I've ever been in. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that makes me so happy. And also it's, like, very vulnerable, too. I'm like, uh, Ashley has seen me 
at my worst because, you know, my girls can tear off a house like nobody's business. I'm like, what did I leave out? But the fact that, I mean, you have always interacted with me um, the same way I think I interact with you, which is just like, oh, thank you so much for existing. Thank yes. you so much for having a voice here in this community. And so uh, I, I love that I'm able to be vulnerable for you in that way <laughs> like um and also thanks for the compliment you know creating spaces that feel warm and um inviting is really important it's important to me so that the fact that you notice that feels really great but um I'm so glad that you're here today on our podcast to share um it's a brave act it's an act that I know that you're up to because you are a brave woman and I've seen that uh, can you tell us and tell the listeners just a little bit about you and your life right now and kind of your identity and what you do and all of that? Yeah, um, I'm almost 30, uh, and I'm a mom of two boys. Two beautiful boys I saw this past week. They're so precious. Um, one is a toddler, so bless me, and then the <laughs> other is uh, almost four months old. And uh, my husband and I have been married for almost two years now. And um, I actually, I co-founded the Black Poet Society here in Waco. And uh, I was a really big part of the poetry community. And I've been a part of the art community for a while. Uh, I work with the big drag show that happens every year that funds the Cultural Arts Fest. Awesome. Yeah. So big advocate of the arts absolutely how how can we follow that and figure out when those sorts of things are and when they're happening is there something we can follow on social media yeah um you can always follow fiona bond she's wonderful Mm -hmm. i love fiona um but also the the cultural arts fest has its own page okay awesome Uh, and we share about it every year but the drag show this year is going to be in november it's at Waco Civic Theater, and um, it's called The Diva Show. The Diva Show. I'm going to have to be there because I'm a diva. I won't be performing. I will be enraptured by the authenticity of the performers. That's the thing that about drag shows that I'm, like, weeping. I'm like, these people are bravely showing up 100% as themselves, and they don't give a crap, and mm-hmm. I'm inspired yeah. inspired i love it um i'm actually performing this year ah! for the first time i've worked the okay. diva show for six years now so this is my first time as a performer so i'm really excited about it well can't miss it now i wasn't gonna miss it before but i absolutely that's going on my calendar how <laughs> awesome and congratulations to you for being that in that place of bravery to like perform and show up authentically in that space. So thrilling. And also love Fiona. When people come up that are, that are people that my heart holds dear, we always want to give those people a shout out. Um, Fiona is just such an incredible advocate for the arts in town and, and is doing a lot of beautiful things and you alongside her, which is so great. So I, I will start, um, when I when I talk to people in this forum, just about kind of your origin story, you know, kind of early life, the things that might pave the way for us to understand um, kind of the key story that you're here to tell today about abuse and relationships that you've experienced in your lifetime. So kind of give us that 
that foundation to understand um, kind of how you got there, uh, who who you were, childhood until that point. Okay. Well, I grew up in the Panhandle of Texas, and if you've never been there, the Panhandle is unlike anywhere else. <laughs> uh, I like to commonly like refer to it as it's sort of the wild wild west of Texas still like there's just not very many rules um my father is black my mom is white so I'm biracial and that played a really big part in my growing up and my mom got remarried when I was six so my dad was just sort of not around he worked a lot he lived in Dallas Mm -hmm. and my stepfather was not equipped to be a father and he had very very strong southern baptist roots so he had like a very specific thought process of the way that children should be the way things should be um which was a constant like children should be seen and not heard and things like that and I have always been the exact opposite of that. <laughs> yeah, a little bit extra, which uh-huh. we like. Yes, that is a real nice way to put that. Um, we, I learned as an adult that I'm autistic, and that often in girls that shows itself by um, things like being a performer because you're over the top, which is not norm- commonly how we think of autism. So I was just very, um, except dramatic all the time, but I just felt things so fully. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't think I was putting on any kind of show. It was just that I feel things so deeply. And as a child, you don't have any other way to, to express that. Absolutely. So um, I also was a very, very sick child. And I almost died twice. Uh they, the doctors told my mom to call the family in to say goodbye. But nobody asked me if I was okay with dying. And I was like, I got things to do. So it's a no for me. <laughs> Gonna pass. <laughs> yeah. Mm, thanks. No thanks. But <laughs> so I obviously did not die. But I was really sick. I was in a wheelchair for a year. Uh, I have had... <laughs> I have horrible lung problems, which is super fun in this COVID era. Mm. Uh, So a a bunch of stuff like that. I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia at 14. um, And at that time, I was the youngest person in America to be diagnosed with it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, I've never heard of that. But there's that affirmation. Okay. Being the youngest to be diagnosed. And fibromyalgia, for those that don't, don't know, is... A chronic pain syndrome um, that also has effects on kind of brain functioning with brain fog and anxiety and confusion and lots of things like that really challenging to live with yes um, I was 14 which is a horrible time for a lot of people anyway I'm just so many feelings <laughs> like, here's puberty and then here's fibromyalgia yes um, fibromyalgia hypoglycemia and epilepsy were yeah. all diagnosed within a month uh, of each other for me and I there was a point where I was taking 37 pills a day so it was just like a struggle to stay upright yeah. but I did it <laughs> so um yeah that's that's really a little bit about me I was a really great student and I was very outgoing 
but I recently realized that did not mean I was popular. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, something that you realized later in life. (laughs) You know, there's this protective bubble sometimes in childhood (laughs) where it's like, I don't even know. I love people. I don't even know that I may be being bullied or, you know, whatever. And I'm grateful for that protective bubble for you back then because you were going through a lot. Yes. I mean, you know, being biracial, and, and I've never been to the panhandle, but when you describe it, I think about, you know, I haven't always lived in the South. I've been in Texas for 11 years, and so it was a culture shock to me, um, not racism in and of itself, because I'm a multiculturally oriented therapist and have studied that and understand microaggressions and witness those and other parts of the country, but kind of coming to Texas, seeing that, you know, it was more significant and prevalent than anywhere I'd ever been. Um, And, you know, when I think about the Wild West, I'm like, oh my gosh, for you as someone that was biracial, abusive, or um, a child of divorce, um, you know, these rules that did not fit with your temperament or your diagnoses that you would get later on, the chronic illness. Like, life doesn't seem like it has ever been a cakewalk for you at all. No, not at all. I uh, I told my husband recently that I didn't realize that most children do not have, like, existential crises. <laughs> <laughs> I was four, and I remember just like pondering life and like the meaning of it and why was I here and all of these things and I've always been this way just very like angst filled Mm -hmm. and you know it's part of the reason everyone was oh she's so dramatic but I I just had these like long suffering thoughts Mm -hmm. that I've dealt with since I was a child so I was a very depressed child because other kids were you know like Yeah, let's play kickball. And I was like, the world is melting. (laughs) (laughs) Have you heard about the polar ice caps? (laughs) Yes. You know, it's just so indicative of this personality um, or, or those of us in the world that are kind of empaths. And that language is being used more now, but I can relate. You know, I'm kind of special in my own way. Um, And remember like at five years old looking in the mirror and being like what am I who is this person and then you know coming later on to realize as a psychologist that that in and of itself is something that's linked often with high intelligence um, is linked with this highly sensitive um, person or this empath personality or way of being in the world that isn't necessarily the norm yes but when it's you you're like oh everyone's like this right until you grow up and you're like oh I guess I'm really special yes (laughs) those existential four-year-old existential crises yes I had a handful of friends growing up and looking back it's because the other kids who were on the fringes I was just like oh well we're all the same people and I just sort of gathered them um, but because I was the gatherer, then I was like the primary friend for them. So in my brain, I was popular. Mm-hmm. Looking back, no, I was not. I was not popular, but I had a dedicated small circle of friends. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you collected 
the Island of Misfit Toys. I did, yes. Which is my absolute favorite people group. Yes, <laughs> me too. They still are. Sometimes I meet people that are, you know, air quote, normal. Normies? I w- yes. I remember going on a date with this guy, and his biggest problem was that his parents weren't going to pay for his car insurance anymore. And I just didn't understand him at all. I was like, so, like, you don't have depression or anxiety <laughs> or anything? And he was like, mm, no, most days are good days. And I was like, <laughs> weird. <laughs> we are going to have nothing to talk about. Yeah. I was like, okay, well, you can pay for my tater tots, and then you can go. <laughs> Perfect. Well, and, you know, I you have young kiddos, and, you know, I have kiddos, and I'm constantly trying to teach them about how being popular is way overrated. Yeah. And, you know, oftentimes comes with, like, judgment and we want to be kind to people and include others. And, you know, bless her, my middle child, who is delightfully weird, probably my my mini-me, is like, I'm a nerd. And I'm like, that's awesome. And she goes, what's a nerd? (laughs) And I was like, it just means you're really smart and really cool and super creative and she's like yeah I'm a nerd and I'm like perfect I think I'm doing some good work here (laughs) but um but yeah realizing that later on you know there are those social um things that I would anticipate you experienced um but maybe you weren't aware of there was a protection there and you were still you had your group of friends but and you needed that with everything you were going through yes very much so so kind of walk us into um, your story of abuse in relationships. You know, when you think about this experience for you, and it's not one, it's multiple, and, and oftentimes that, that is a person's story. Um, sometimes we just, like, trade up a little bit better, it's still bad, or sometimes we think it's good and it's just love bombing and then the person really shows their colors. So yeah, walk us through your journey in in relationships. So unfortunately, it really started with like my first boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Uh, We lived in the same area and he was actually dating my best friend at the time. But when, I mean, I had like, you know, we all have like elementary school boyfriends or whatever and I had had one in like fifth grade (laughs) and she stole that boyfriend from me they started dating they dated at the time for like a year and a half which is an incredibly long time for 12 year olds yeah yeah uh but I was pretty sore about it and we were all on a three-way call for those of you old enough to remember those I do (laughs) uh and we started talking and then we just hung up on her and kept talking and so I just stole her boyfriend back because that was healthy (laughs) and uh we were 14 at the time dated a good portion of the year and it was not even vaguely healthy like he anything that he said went I was I would have done anything to make him happy Mm -hmm. um and then he again cheated on me (laughs) with a different girl and he actually married her so I was like oh okay well go on then Mm -hmm. but um so it kind of started with that and it was just me constantly trying to I felt like play catch up so that someone would love me 
like my dad was never around and it was very clear to me that my stepdad didn't like me very much like he said all the time he loved me but it was clear he did not like me mm-hmm. and so I just wanted somebody to look at me you know like I had stars in my eyes mm-hmm. and so if you know I got that for five minutes that was great yeah that was like the reward yes that you were seeking so I, I didn't realize for a long time that I was really honestly pretty actively manipulating people into giving me those moments so that I could kind of just like tuck them away and keep them. Mm-hmm. And so I there were so many, so many like boyfriends and relationships and whatever so that I could just snag those moments where I could get them. Um And my friends would say, oh, my gosh, your life is like a movie. And I would tell them stories. And, like, I never told them, like, it's like a movie because I made it like a movie. Like, it's not real. You know, these are not things that happen unprompted. Like, people don't realize sometimes how you're prompting them, but you can prompt them in the right direction Mm -hmm. to give them what you want or have them give you what you want, really. When when you bring that up for me, it really – or bring that up, it it brings up in me – um, kind of this people-pleasing way of being in the world. And I think women in particular are vulnerable to that because we don't have access a lot of times to power. And so there's this, like, to get what we want, which is love and acceptance, um, are able to give up ourselves. Yes. Um, do you have you do, you do any Enneagram? Yes. Okay. Are you a two? Um, I, that's are my, you a four? I'm a, uh-huh, yes. And two in stress. <laughs> yes. Sister, same, same. <laughs> okay. So yeah, that kind of people pleasing. And I want to make that clear for our listeners that this manipulation is not malicious manipulation. Right. It is a desperate seeking of love and validation and connection and, and sometimes, um, a tie that we can create with another person to feel safe and cared for. Um, So what what sorts of things, behaviors did you engage in um, that you recognize as that manipulation? It was really, I've always been very good at reading people because I had to be, um, not knowing that I was autistic, but also being biracial and a bunch of other things when you're on you're on high alert all the time and so you learn to read the room and read people and I learned very quickly the people in my life how to read them like four steps ahead so that I could get in front of them being upset Mm -hmm. and in doing that then I started doing that in my relationships which is really unhealthy and um so it was constantly analyzing what they were going through, what the day looked like, what their stressors were, their triggers, things like that, and then presenting the option to them that would be the best for them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I knew that they were going to have, you know, a rough day at school and that they preferred to de-stress, you know, by whatever, eating Doritos or playing video games, then that was the solution that I presented, like, the second this stress reared its head. And it was just, I always had the answer. So they wanted to come to me because it required less effort on their end to figure out what they needed. Mm -hmm. 
And I think what people don't understand about those of us who have been people pleasers is the tremendous amount of emotional labor that that requires. You know, it, the the point is it does like ease the other person's life and it prevents them from feeling ang- the hope is mm-hmm. anger, upset, discomfort, and then you become this important thing and their life is easy. But for you as the people pleaser, you learn this heavy emotional labor of anticipating needs. Like if this, then this, then this, and this would be the thing that would comfort. And then I'm just going to show up and be like, Hey, I brought this to you. Yes. As though it was that easy, but it's exhausting. It is exhausting. And I did it every second of every day for a long time. Um, So when I was in high school, I met this guy and I thought he hung the moon. And we got engaged in high school and we were planning on getting married and he got uh, arrested for something stupid like vandalism at his high school or something and he was already on probation so they sent him to um like one of those air quote work camps you know for teenagers or it's just slave labor pretty much Mm -hmm. and he was gone for six months and he came back and he was not the same and he was just angry and all the things and so we split up right before i turned 18 and i was so devastated um it was like the worst heartbreak I'd ever had because it was the one that I I really let my guard down for. Mm. And um, very quickly after that, a, a guy that I had dated briefly in high school showed up again, and he was the complete opposite. And so I was like, yeah, let's do that because if it's the opposite, there's no way I'm going to get hurt the same way. Mm-hmm. Um. And we got married when I was 19, and it was horrible. Um, He was absolutely a narcissistic abuser and has since even told me he didn't know why he did a lot of the things he did. He just kind of thought it was funny. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, you don't even think about this. And he'd say, oh, did I do that? I don't remember. And I'm thinking, you don't remember because for you it was a Tuesday. And I've been carrying this around for almost a decade now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I see a lot of time, and it's been my own experience as well, that empaths or empathic people um, and narcissists or narcissistically kind of characterological people often end up in relationships because it's this puzzle piece of... Um, I am the center of the world and everything that I want is what is true and what is real and what is happening. And then the empath is your feelings are the most important. I'm going to meet your needs. And so it's like this weird, perfect storm of attraction that you don't know until it gets bad. And then and then you still might not know Um, what sorts of things did you start to notice in the relationship? You were really young when you got married, but, you know, for listeners that don't understand narcissistic abuse, um, what sorts of things started to happen in that relationship for you? Well, first it was, I went from, you know, being the stars and the moon to everything that I thought, everything I liked, everything I enjoyed was dumb. 
like all all of the things that made me me were silly or vapid or just whatever you know he wanted to say to hurt the most at the moment mm-hmm. and um and it went it was so so stark in contrast because when we dated you know he would whatever we wanted to do you know we would hang out do the same things we read the same kinds of books like there was a reason there was an attraction there we Mm -hmm. had things in common until suddenly we didn't and we didn't and it was apparently my fault Mm, that's what you were told yes and so that's pretty common in a narcissistic abuse dynamic is everything about you um is demeaned belittled insulted name called um and over time it becomes a reality that you can believe um to where you you no longer have a self let alone self-esteem and the beginning of these sorts of relationships is pretty typical for what you're describing too you know you're probably familiar with the term love bombing Mm -hmm. so it's like oh it's good at the beginning and so this effect of like I must be doing something wrong that it's no longer that when in actuality that's kind of one of the traits of a narcissistic uh, partner is at the beginning I'm going to show you this this one uh, thing which may not even be an aspect of them it's like a performance like whining dining loving affirming and then that just goes away and oftentimes it's when people realize um, like I've heard a lot of survivors say, like, right after their wedding, it's like, once I have you, you don't get that anymore, and now this is what you're going to have. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Um, He would tell me that, you know, the books I liked or, you know, anything, anything about me, the clothes. I remember once putting makeup on, and he came in the room, and he looked at me just like disgusted and smeared it across my face and said who the hell do you think you're dressing up for why do you think anyone's gonna look at you and it was just everything like that like he would tell me that he had to tell me no because people in my life had never told me no before and somebody needed to teach me that I couldn't have everything that I wanted And so then I just didn't get to have anything that I wanted ever. I mean, we were married. Well, we were together, um, like, physically in the same space um, for a year and a half. And I did not watch a television show that I liked for a year and a half. Mm -hmm. Because he said someone needed to tell me no. I didn't eat food that I liked for a year and a half. It was so bad that um, towards the end of the relationship, I got really sick and I asked him please to take me to the doctor because I couldn't drive because of the epilepsy. And um, he told me that he had a therapy appointment and his mental health was more important than my physical health. And if I'd ever cared about him, I would know that. Um, But that I was the selfish one. Mm -hmm. And so my mom came She lived like an hour away and picked me up and took me. And I had bronchitis, pneumonia, like four other things. I was 
very sick and the doctor was like you could have ended up hospitalized Mm -hmm. and he just acted like I was being dramatic about the whole thing um like I I remember that one pretty vividly because that was one of the moments it was very shortly after that I woke up and I thought if this is what the rest of my life looks like then I don't want to wake up tomorrow yeah I mean to have suicidal ideation when you have become trapped and so small in this cage to where you have no voice you have no agency you have no free will Um, these are basic human rights and I think people don't understand the nature of this type of abuse because it doesn't necessarily leave a mark that can be seen but the damage to one's soul and to one's mind and one's heart is so significant and um, you know even the National Domestic Violence website um, states that with psychological abuse uh, people are more likely to develop PTSD than with physical violence and domestic violence. And so, you know, I think, I hope that can, for our listeners, speak to the significant um, damage that this sort of abuse can do. Um, you know, we know that you left. How, how did you end up leaving, and, and what were, was the impact of this relationship on you? It was really difficult. So he had also completely isolated me from my friends and my family. Mm -hmm. By the end, I was only allowed to have my mother's phone number, his phone number, and my best friend's phone number and my phone. But I was only allowed to talk to my best friend if he was also in the chat. And if not, I mean, you say aloud and people think, well, what did he do? Did he put a gun to your head? Or, you know, I've heard that before. And it's not like that. It's that they throw such a big fit and it's so emotionally draining when you're already emotionally drained and you have nowhere to go that you just don't want to deal with it. Like it's not worth it to fight them Mm -hmm. because it seems like they just sort of have this endless boundless energy to be horrible Mm -hmm. and you just don't have any left to you know, to react. You're just, you're trying really hard to survive. Yeah, it's survival. And I would imagine, um, and tell me if this isn't part of your story, but um, I wanted, I was hoping we could speak to the allowed because I experienced that myself. And when you're sharing about your story, you say, I wasn't allowed to have friends. I wasn't allowed to spend money. I wasn't allowed. And people are like, well, you're an adult. But um, I know in my experience, I just had so much fear. Yes. And oftentimes, you know, kind of narcissistic rage is a concept that if you've never experienced it, you won't understand the fear that is put into the person that is around it. And so if the narcissist doesn't get their way, there is rage. And the fear that you feel of that rage is what prevents you from standing up for yourself or and you could try and stand up for yourself but you'll just be talked in a circle and yes blamed and shamed until you're like I guess I was wrong to you know so yeah this this piece of not being allowed is absolutely valid and you know I see it all the time with other women that have experienced this dynamic yes it's terrifying yeah and you come to doubt yourself so fully Mm -hmm. I remembered that doctor's appointment 
I was sitting there with my mom and I was telling her that I didn't know how to fill the paperwork out. And she was like, yes, you do. Like you just answer the questions. And she didn't realize that I had literally been so like talked in circles for so long that I was just questioning anything that my brain told me. And so I genuinely did not know the answers that were on the form. Like I knew my name and I knew my birthday and that was pretty much it. Mm -hmm. Like, I was like, I don't know, like, do I have a fever? Do I have a cough? Or did I just make that up? And for the longest, I just kind of thought I made everything up. Um, because that's what he told me. That didn't happen. Told. Mm-hmm. Uh, he told me after we were divorced that there was a time that he thought it was really funny to take my things while I was sleeping and to move them to different parts of the house or to just slightly damage them. Or something. And then when I was like, did you do that? He would act like I was crazy and be like, no. Why Why would you think that I did that? And it, I did. I thought that I was insane. Absolutely. As anyone would in that situation, right? And yeah. this is one of the big weapons of a narcissistic abuser is, you know, s- sometimes not to the extent of that sort of manipulation, um but just telling you you're crazy like I feel this way I think this way you're crazy you're crazy to the point where you believe it yourself and I can totally relate I mean I remember thinking you know the police could show up to the door and tell me I murdered someone and I'd be like you know what I don't remember but if you're saying I did take me away because you know you get robbed of truth yes and you no no longer know what is true And then the really painful parts your brain tries to protect you from. So you have like blackouts kind of. And they'll tell you, well, you did this and this. And it's like, "Uh, maybe I did. I don't remember. I can't really tell you much about what's happened in the last three months. Like, Mm -hmm. And so it was very much like that. And I had that thought about if this is what it's like, then I just... I don't want to do it anymore. And I thought that that moment like spurred me and was like, no, you are 21. Like you're barely 21. You're not going to, my, my grandma was in an abusive relationship and I just was, I wasn't going to do that for 50 years. It wasn't going to happen. And so I told him I wanted a divorce. So we had one week of love bombing, really great week. And then at the end of the week, uh, he woke me up by throwing my phone at me because I had gotten a text from a guy that lived in the complex checking on me. And I'll admit, there was attraction there, but there's going to be attraction there when somebody's nice to you. Right. (laughs) I fell for someone because they gave me human decency. Yeah. (laughs) He smiled at me and told me I looked pretty, and that was more than I had had in two years. So, um And so he said, if anyone was asking questions like that, that clearly I was cheating on him and it was this whole thing. And it was just, just his way of one, you know, ending it on his terms. Mm -hmm. Having control. Yeah. And I was like, okay, sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fine. Guess I was. Whatever. (laughs) I I didn't want to argue about it anymore. And uh, so I... I told my parents, and he moved out. He was from New York, so he moved back. And that was the end of that. But I, like, 
pretty much immediately it just snowballed into a different abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I had met a guy like in the vegan chat room. <laughs> <laughs> like he's got to be good if he's vegan. He's vegan, yeah, because I was vegan at the time, and I was like, well, you know, he's very kind and all the things, but he was also like twenty years older than me. And uh, I didn't find out until much later he was uh, a registered sex offender. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, and I, I had moved in with him over nine yards, and he was also a narcissistic user. Same stuff. Same stuff. It was wonderful in the beginning. It was all great until it wasn't. Um, my emotions were valid and, like, my husband should have listened to me and blah, 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 blah. Until why are you so emotional? You're making this a big deal. It's nothing. You know, maybe he was right. Maybe you are crazy. Mm-hmm. And um, then on Christmas Eve, he raped me. And I was like, this is a really low point. So I went to go have lunch with my mom, and I just never came back. Like, we got my stuff, and we got my dog probably a month later, and he'd been trying to get back together with me the whole time. Um, And I was just like, I can't do this. I'm done. Mm -hmm. So there was that one. And um, then my grandma died. This is like trauma after trauma after trauma. And I think it's so important that people understand that if you've been abused in a relationship ever, it's easy to just keep replaying that because especially with narcissistic abuse, it's the love bombing. So coming out of your first, your marriage, your first marriage and the vulnerability you had, you know, it sounds also like you know, some symptoms of PTSD, that confusion and all of that, um, which is very common for people who've been in narcissistic abusive relationships. So you're not in a very strong space. You didn't have time to recover. And then there is this need with PTSD, which is an anxiety spectrum disorder, a need for comfort. Yes. And so when presented with this man, not knowing you're still young at the time too, like this might be love bombing, but I don't know what love bombing is. And also I know I'm feeling comfort. I'm feeling validated. I'm feeling seen. And you know, that's my story too. I was in a relationship with another narcissist because it was love bombing after my divorce and, um, you know, finding out that he was married, uh, was a problem and then you know the the lies start to unfold and and when truth starts to happen that anger is very present it's like how did this happen again again yes (laughs) but it, it makes so much sense why it happens and how it happens and you're craving this love that they're giving you not knowing that it's fake yes I have to say like it's just so validating to hear you say that because I I look back sometimes and I think like no one is gonna want to listen to this like no one's gonna believe me how were you in you know this young and had already you know like four abusive relationships under your belt like two rapes like this just sounds ridiculous honestly it just sounds like you're just playing the victim is what it sounds like but 
when you don't have any space to breathe and to heal, you can't help but just sort of trip and fall up in an abuser's lap because you're in survival mode. Yeah. And it's every time. And you think, oh, they're a good guy. Like this, this person is good. You know, they've proven to me they're good by this and this and this, but they'll prove it until they don't. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's, that's just really validating to hear that yeah and I think part of this podcast and just kind of how I try to be in the world is speaking these truths in my own life that I'm aware because of the privilege of being able to be a psychologist I've heard so many thousands of stories in the 12 years of my practice that like people need to know they're not the only one and and my story is a reflection of that. And so I can't tell their stories, but I can tell mine and be able to connect with you that, you know, there are people that will understand and this isn't your fault. Like this is this is the pattern that that plays out until somebody experiences something where all of a sudden they have the awareness and they change. And um, that's not by force of will. It just, to me, it feels like miraculous when that happens because yes. it just happens. Um, but yeah, kind of share about, you know, the next relationship for you after that one. I mean, that was very traumatic. There was a sexual assault involved. Um, thankfully you had your mom there to get you out of that situation, but you know, so right after that, um, like I said, my grandma died and it was extremely sudden. Mm -hmm. Um, she was fine. On a Wednesday, we went to Sam's, went shopping. Uh, she was in the ER Thursday night, and they diagnosed her with horrible cancer. They literally looked at her and said, no one's ever told you you have cancer before? And she was like, uh, no. And they were like, oh, because you have, like, cancer. <laughs> and so they told her to make an appointment with the oncologist on Monday. But she was in the hospital that weekend. And then in hospice, and she died exactly two weeks from the day she got diagnosed. Oh, wow. So it was incredibly fast. At that point, we were living in her house. Like, we had all moved in together because she needed help with my grandfather. Well, he sort of miraculously became okay when this happened. And then, and I mean, we had, my parents had, like, sold all their furniture, like, everything because... The thought process was once both of my grandparents passed away, my family would just live in the house. You know, it would be paid for. Well, he was like, no, I don't want you here. And so then kicked everybody out. So we didn't have any furniture. We didn't have, at that point, like anywhere to go. So it was i mean like in the throes of hospice and funerals and all of that so my my friend was like you just need to do something to get your mind off of it and so because i was very healthy at the time i was like i'll download tinder (laughs) (laughs) so i did um and i i met a guy on tinder and he was actually really lovely and he sort of was my saving grace in that time because he didn't put any expectations on me. He understood what I had been through and he was like very gentle and, you know, you know what, if you're not comfortable with that, then we won't do that. 
my family was nervous about me going on a date with him, as they well should have been. And so my mom asked for a picture of his ID, and she took a picture of his license plate. And he was like, yes, ma'am, that's fine. <laughs> and um, so we dated for a while. He was in the Army, so he was at Fort Hood. And um, then he left the Army and moved to Oregon. And we broke up because he moved to Oregon. And, um, I mean, that was, that was like my respite. <laughs> yeah, you had a break from the constant trauma, maybe for the first time in your life. Yeah, he was probably m- genuinely my first healthy relationship ever. Um, and I was constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop because that's what you think is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... After that, I began talking to my ex, the first one from before I got married, from high school. My my parents used to refer to my boyfriends as a revolving door of boys because it was the same ones. Mm. I was like the same handful because like it didn't work once, but we already know each other and you're comfortable. So like, let's just slip into this old pair of jeans again. And like, "Mm, nope, they're still ugly. So... (laughs) Like, over and over and over again. And um, so I started talking to him, and, I mean, he was, like, an integral part of our family for years when when I was in high school and we were together. Um, my parents, they, like, viewed him as a son. It was a whole thing. Um, no one knew it for a long time, but when I was 16 with him, I lost a baby. Uh, and I just kept that to myself because I I couldn't share it. And so, you know, in my brain, he was my first love. He was the father of my only child, even though my child was in heaven. And all I had ever wanted, all I ever wanted in my life was to be a wife and a mother. Mm-hmm. And um, so we started talking again. And again, healthy choices, but he was in jail. And he was getting out. And I was like, well, just come here. And my family was like, yeah, we loved him. Like, mm-hmm. we, they never stopped loving him. It was just a bad breakup and bad decisions. And so he said he was, you know, clean and sober and all that jazz. And it was good for a minute. But for a minute, we got married. And I will say it was one of the most beautiful days of my life even still mm-hmm. you know he was my first love and until i met my husband he was the great love of my life mm-hmm. um we had a beautiful garden wedding uh we were butterflies <laughs> it was a wonderful day and then he told me late much later that he woke up the day after we got married and said that was for better or for worse I don't have to try anymore. (sighs) And everything rapidly deteriorated. Um, He started doing meth. Mm -hmm. And he was hiding it in our house. And he was stealing different things from the house to pay for meth and to pay for hookers. And um, he would just disappear. He would just be gone for three, four days at a time, sometimes longer, and then show back up. And it was always weird because he would show up wherever I was, even if I wasn't at home. And I never really knew how he knew where I was. Um, But, like, he's my 
husband. So it's not like I'm going to be like, go away, you know? Mm. And you're so worried the whole time. You're worried that they're, you know, are you dead? Are you back in jail? Like, for people who don't have experience with um with our prison system, it's really good at not communicating. Right, yeah. So if somebody who's on parole or probation gets picked up, like, they don't notify your family. So it until you can get a phone call, which they say you get one in county, but they don't always let you have one, mm-hmm. especially if you've been to county before and they don't like you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, then you just are sort of in this weird limbo hoping they're okay until you hear from them. And then there's this, like, relief, like, oh, you're okay. But then that deep sadness because, and you're back in jail. Like, we're going to do this again. Okay. Yeah. And I would imagine it makes it difficult, you know, outside of the fact that we've talked about the people-pleasing and not necessarily, like, being able to or having the opportunity to learn to speak your voice or your your feelings to people combined with, I'm just so glad that you're here, you know, there's no, like, what are you doing? We need to work on this because you're just so relieved that they're there. Yes. And and I can see that that would be such a challenging situation for you to have any sort of um, efficacy in. Yeah. Well, and you feel like you can't fight because you only have, you know, 15 minutes on the phone. Yeah. And then, and you're the one paying for it too. So you're paying for your your own necessities, your own bills. But then you have to put money on their books for anything. Mm-hmm. People don't realize that, but I mean, it's literally for anything. They're like, oh, well, they get a free bed and they get free food, but it's horrible food and it's barely enough for grown people. So any anything else, like a razor, you know, like so they can shave or just anything, socks, and they're like Disney World prices. So, like, you know, here you buy a pair of socks for $3 or, I mean, go to Dollar Tree. Yeah. It's not like that there. It's like, oh, well, we have these socks and uh, you're going to pay us, like, $18 for some socks. They're not making any money in there, so you're the one that's paying for it. Mm. And so you feel like you can't fight because you paid, you know, $5 for this phone call and you don't want to spend 15 minutes because 15 minutes isn't going to hash out a fight anyway. Right. And then you don't want to fight when you see them at visitation because you don't know if you're going to get to see them at another visitation. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just trying to grasp and be present and hold on to the moments that you get. And you're trying really hard to make them good moments because you don't know how many you have. Mm-hmm. And then when they get out, if they're still doing, you know, whatever they were doing before, there's always a part of you that's like, they could be dead. Like, he literally could have, you know, my mom used to say that to me, but, like, he literally could have been dead in a ditch and I wouldn't have known. Mm-hmm. And the strain on someone's nervous system, like, constantly fearing that and constantly fearing the, will I get a call, will I not get a call? I mean, it sounds like you probably just lived in fear yes. for so long. How how long were you married to him? It was actually really a short time in my life. It feels so huge because it was like honestly it was like the culmination of seven years really because it was so it was seven years to the day that we got engaged again so we got engaged and then seven years to the day engaged again um our wedding date was supposed to be our original wedding date so that was seven years and then the day we broke up was also seven years um yeah (laughs) 
lucky number seven. But mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we were actually only like together in the same house married for six months um, because it was six months of him saying, I don't have to try anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're somebody who's already so institutionalized and things like that, like th- that I don't have to try anymore is very different than just your average person's. Um, so obviously like we were living in the house with my parents and my little sister and he was like bringing meth and um like really you know some dangerous people into our home Mm -hmm. and i was like i can't when i like when i discovered that i was like "Mm -mm, nope i didn't want it to end this way but if this is how it ends this is how it ends so um actually the reason that i had the courage to leave him it's kind of funny is uh russell russell campbell shout out to russell one of our favorite artists in waco hear us how you doing yeah um we had worked together and we became friends and he was constantly just like you deserve so much more than this bozo like this guy is garbage ashley and i was like but i love him and he's like k and <laughs> and uh he really i would not i wouldn't have left if it hadn't been for him and so the day that I left, I put all of his things outside and I wrote a note because I also found out that he was um, not just like cheating with hookers, which is bad enough. <laughs> that sentence. But <laughs> um, like he was telling all kinds of girls online, like he was like flirting with them and sending them like inappropriate videos and pictures and all kinds of stuff and saying like, oh, well, my wife is dying and she gave me permission to try and find happiness and like all of these crazy stories about me for to like half of them I was dead to like the other half I was dying but like to me he was like let's try to have a baby yeah and I I can relate to that you know finding those sorts of messages where your your spouse is talking about their wife and you're like that's me and you're married to me and you know the the way that that makes you feel inside is just it's hard to describe yeah such a betrayal yes a deep betrayal and um so I wrote I wrote him a letter and I was like you can go to Megan's house there's one of them Mm -hmm. I hear my baby out there (laughs) and I was like I I don't I don't have anything for you anymore. I'm sorry. You need to go to the next place. And uh, then I went to Russell's house. And he was like, okay, turn your phone off because you're going to be checking it. And he's going to, like, freak out when he realizes. And I was like, but he was right. Mm-hmm. And um, I did. I woke up to, like, 20 voicemails from him. And they were, like, all from different numbers because he didn't have a phone because of all of his crazy things that he was doing and so they were like from different gas stations and stuff just random people he would ask to borrow their phone and call me it was so much um and so after that I was I was so wrecked I was beyond wrecked Mm -hmm. it had just been thing after thing and I mean when I said he was the great love of my life that was not an exaggeration like To me, he was everything. Mm -hmm. And so I had to just leave. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, the guy I had dated before uh, that moved to Oregon. I was like, I have an extra room. Just come stay here for a little bit. Like, just take a breather. And I was like, I can't do that. And he was like, why? And I didn't have a good reason. So I went and I was there for like a week to see if I even liked it. And Oregon is beautiful. Yes, the Pacific Northwest. Oh, so it, gorgeous. It's so pretty. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So I went home. I packed a backpack and a suitcase. And I moved back. Mm-hmm. And I was like, sorry, bye, mom. Uh, and she was obviously... We're very, very close, my mom mm-hmm. and I. And so she was pretty devastated. But I, could, I couldn't I could physically be in that space anymore because every time I looked around, I saw... The memories. And yes. Yes. Right before the end, he he had been on something. Uh, I don't know what. And I'll never know what. I don't know. He knew. And um, he started choking me. Mm-hmm. And, like, his eyes didn't even look like his eyes anymore. I know people say that. I know you read it in books or whatever, but it was literally like they were just devoid of any human kindness. Right, you couldn't find the human in the eyes. Yes, just like these black pits. And I was just sort of like, oh, so this is how it goes. Like, this is how I'll die, being choked to death by my husband. Cool beans. Um, And so that time I was, when when I went back to Oregon, I kind of just did nothing mm-hmm. um I was there a good while over a year uh but with with my friend we were so I just stayed there and again he was and is such a good friend just gave me the space that I needed you know mm-hmm. um and then he bought this little house in the Oregon countryside and like the backyard was a river and I had this little deck over it and I am not an outdoors human <laughs> like if someone's like oh there's a thing and we can do it and it's outside I'm like uh-huh, no <laughs> thanks but no thanks so I I started like really liking being outside and I would go out every day and I would journal and that was how I was processing through and every single day I did it, it was really important to me. Um, but also, one of the good things was being in the countryside, there is no Wi-Fi. And he doesn't own a TV because he's a bit of a weirdo. So <laughs> that was it. Like No distractions, you, your trauma, and the healing power of nature. You know, I'm a former anti-outdoorsy person, too, until, you know, really trying over the last three years to heal trauma in my nervous system and finding, despite the Texas heat, which I still am not a fan of, that nature is just incredibly grounding yes. and soothing. And you have you had access to water there and just being there is yes. healing, doing your journaling. Sounds like you are doing a lot of inner work. Yes, a lot of it and it is like you said sitting with things that are growing reminds you of the good things that are still growing in you mm-hmm. and there was a time when I didn't feel like there was much and so it was really just soul saving mm-hmm. to be there and to have that I <laughs> I made like peace and I made friends with like even the bugs like mm-hmm. I would I'd be journaling and you know, something, 
normally would have freaked me out a spider or you know a wasp would come and i would be like hello wasp friend how are you <laughs> i know now my husband's just like you're so weird um <laughs> well that's how i became a tree hugger i had heard that phrase from the 70s and like walking in cameron park one time and i saw this old tree and it was just so beautiful and i was like thank you for giving me oxygen and like you're sacrificing your body because part of it was rotting to fertilize for new trees and i like had to hug it and i was like who the hell am i <laughs> i don't even know but it just feels right it feels peaceful and like you are part of this beautiful thing yes. that is the world around you that is nature that is it's a reminder that even like in your trauma you are still interconnected to all things like we are all of each other and that was so needed because I just had felt so isolated for so long just like isolated and like unimportant but then when you realize like when we're all a part of each other, that means we're all valuable. Mm-hmm. So it was so necessary. And um, at that point, I had, I had like branched out. We had made some new friends. And um, I was like doing karaoke. I actually won a karaoke competition in Oregon. Yes, girl. Yeah, I have a trophy somewhere. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... It was just like little things like that. I started doing things that I loved just because I loved them. Um, And that was so exciting. And there was this little bar like right down the street from us. And I would go to karaoke there. And our friends, we were there like like twice a week. (laughs) And um, they knew me by name. But so... uh, I was, again, on Tinder, and I swiped right, and I met this guy, and I just thought he was so funny, just out of the gate, and so I was like, I will go on a date with you to this one place, because they know me. Because it's my place. It's my place. This is my turf. They know me here, Um, so if, like, you're creepy, they'll know that I think you're creepy. And um, we went, and I really was just like, I'm going to go on this date so someone can buy me tots. <laughs> if you're listening to this and you want to buy me tots. This girl loves some tots. I will go on a date with you, and my husband will say okay, because he <laughs> won't have to pay for them. But um, <laughs> so uh, when I showed up, and literally an hour into it, we were both looking at each other, and we were like, yeah, we're going to get married, aren't we? And I was livid like livid is an understatement I was so mad because I was like I'm doing all of this healing work and I'm trying to be healthy and stuff and the last thing that I need is another man Mm -hmm. like I need all of the men to just collectively f off the other direction (laughs) and I was so angry about it like I do not have the space for this I don't have the capacity I can't handle it if I get hurt again can't do it And so we played this game of like hot and cold for a little while because I was just like, I can't do it. Like, you know, I'm so scared. And he was so perfect, just respectful. And like, I understand and all the things. And then I was like, fine, whatever. I guess we can date. And then I was like, fine, whatever. I guess we can move in together. (laughs) And then it was like, fine, whatever. I guess we're having a baby. (laughs) Um, 
and that was a really big deal too because the doctors had told both of us that we probably wouldn't be able to have kids without medical intervention. Uh, and so we had had a conversation like, if it happens, it happens, but like we're not trying to force anything. And then we got pregnant, and I was over the moon excited. Mm-hmm. And then I was very violently ill very quickly <laughs> after that. <laughs> and uh, I was like, okay, well, I'm going home. And he was like, what? And I was like, I'm going back to Texas because my mom came to visit that October. And I was like, I'm just going to go home with her because I need to be with my mom. I need to be taken care of. Yeah. And he was like, okay, well, do you want me to come? And I was like, if you feel like it, that's cool. Like, do what you want to do. I had been so disillusioned with my past relationships that I just genuinely didn't believe he was going to stay. Yeah. I was prepared to be a single parent. I was gearing up to be a single parent because I was like, nah, he's going to see these ugly parts of me and he's going to go because they all go even sometimes before they see the ugly parts. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been my truth for a long time. And my pregnancy was like the worst thing. It was so bad. I had um, HG. So I literally was vomiting like eight times a day. Um, it was everything about it was horrible. It was so bad. I didn't know at the time that I was autistic and we... I had moved in with my mom and they didn't have an extra bedroom anymore. So I was literally living on the couch mm-hmm. with a bunch of people and animals. There was no silence. I couldn't take my medications anymore, including my depression medication. Mm-hmm. So my brain just consistently would not shut up. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. So then I'm not having any nutrients on top of just the normal brain fog. Mm-hmm. It was a horrible time. And then he moved down with us. Um, and it was, we just fought. We just fought for most of my pregnancy. And so, of course, because this is the way it works, when that baby came out, he looked just like him. They are twins. <laughs> and he is a phenomenal father. Mm-hmm. Like, amazes me every day with what a wonderful father he is. And we weren't engaged or anything in the time because I had been trying to be divorced um, for a good amount of time. And he kept bouncing in and out of different jails and different places. And so we could never find him with the paperwork. Mm-hmm. And um, so finally it got finalized. And um, we just kind of planned a wedding. Like uh, we didn't even actually officially get engaged because it was like the moment we met, we knew we were going to get married, mm-hmm. which was ridiculous. <laughs> I'm still a little mad it passed me about it. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I had other things I was doing, Um, but it's been wonderful. Um, We've been together three years now, Mm -hmm. and I mean, it was like really fast. My mom was so scared because we, so we met in March, um, and then our birthdays are one day apart, so we're April 12th and April 13th. We started dating like on our birthdays. And then we were moved in together in like June. Mm-hmm. And my mom was like, why are you like this? You're <laughs> like, I don't want to be doing it. It's just right. I don't know. Yeah. I was like, mom, he's great. And then she's like, okay, well, tell me about him. And I was like, um, well, he really likes movies. And she's like, that's it? Like, that's all you got? And I was like, yeah, you'd kind of just have to meet him. And it's so funny because she was so worried. And then, you know, now she knows him very well. Mm-hmm. And she was like, no, you're right. It's kind of the only way you can describe Michael. Just like, he kind of likes movies. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I'm going to have to meet him. <laughs> but it sounds like he offered you, and you had you had done so much healing work with yourself to where you you liked your life so much, single. Yes. That I know that this person had to be remarkable to take that from you. And, you know, that is my hope for my future is, I love my life so much that I'm somebody is going to have to be real impressive to ever take me from it. Also out of this fear, you know, like yes. this is the way it has been in all my relationships. So I have no idea that anyone would be trustworthy, but it sounds like he was gentle with you. He allowed you to pace things. And the fact that you could fight with him, I'm like, yes, queen. Yes. You having a voice, you fighting, was is evidence of your healing that you had done yeah it was a such a change Mm -hmm. I was I mean I was just mean I'm gonna be honest while I was pregnant I was just mean because I had no boundaries I had no physical boundaries I had you know like when you're constantly like throwing up and stuff like that you literally have no boundaries so then you're weak so then like people have to help you in and out of the bathtub like Mm -hmm. you just feel like an invalid I mean I kind of actually was yeah I tell people I quarantined before quarantine because I lived through that by myself with my first pregnancy Mm -hmm. like that was like nine months that I was in a house that I pretty much did not leave Mm -hmm. because I couldn't I was so sick and um yeah we did we did a lot of fighting but like you said it was a safe space for me to fight and I remember my telling my mom I cannot do this if it doesn't it like if we don't end up together I can't go through that again I'm not strong enough right now and I told her I don't before if it had been that bad I would have had an option to out like that sounds terrible but you know I could have died and it would have been fine but now I'm having a baby and I can't do that Mm -hmm. so I can't put myself on the line like that again I was so scared and he was just so patient and so endlessly just right there just this constant supporting person and it was kind of funny but I kind of started to like let myself really love him like when I was in labor (laughs) like literally that was the moment yeah there I there's a photo of us and I'm like in the birth pool and he's holding my hand and we're we both just look exhausted but like that was like the moment for me and then we had our son and he's perfect Mm -hmm. (laughs) he's perfect and um Every second, really, honestly, every, I mean, even the bad times, we have so much fun together. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I can't even state how wonderful it is. He works from home now. Like, we're still sort of in quarantine mm-hmm. and we don't get tired of each other. Like, he goes in the back room to go to the office to go to work and I'm like, okay, bye. I'll miss, miss you, you while you're gone. <laughs> <laughs> like, I might just stop in in five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I'm just like, hey. He's like, hey, what's up? I'm like, nothing. What are you doing? Algebra. Oh, that's cool. Are you just going to stand there and stare at me? Yeah. You're cute. <laughs> it's just, it's good. I never knew because, like, even in my family, the relationships. So everyone in my family is divorced. 
Mm. Everybody. Obviously my parents, all of my grandparents, um, and all of my great-grandparents. Wow. So everyone was divorced. And I, and then when they remarried a bunch of them, it was like, this, you know, this person's better, but... Still not. Yeah. But they're... Okay. <laughs> and so I just didn't know that it was an option to have... You didn't believe it could be real? No. I really thought... There was a time that I told people that soulmate stuff is... It's for books. It's for books. It's for movies. People want it so bad that it's an easy sell, you know, like sex, because TV sex is not like real life sex. Mm -hmm. Like they both sell very similarly. But it was, it really was like this whole fairy tale situation. It's so silly, but like the minute that, that I knew, oh man, like we're going to be together, was we were, he was walking me home because I only lived a few blocks away. And, uh, I referenced Rogers and Hammerstein Cinderella, mm -hmm. the one with Brandy, because that is my favorite movie. Um, I was like, we hide our flaws. And he said, till after the wedding. And I was like, triggered, triggered. Excuse <laughs> you. You know the rest of that quote. And he was like, yeah. And then he went into this long thing about Bernadette Peters. And I was mm. like, he really does know what he's talking about. And I was just shocked and amazed. And then I realized he grew up with like five sisters and they were all musical kids. Okay. And so everything that I had a reference for, hairspray, like all of it. Musical he just, theater nerds unite. Yes. He just came right back and I was like, yeah, well, we're going to have to have kids now. I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> I love this, this love story for you because... It isn't perfect, right? But it's also perfect. Yes. And, you know, seeing these opportunities for you to grow and heal even more, like finding your voice, you know, your pregnancy sounds like a nightmare. I've had three very traumatic pregnancies and births. And, you know, understandable that you had nothing left to hold back that irritability or anger, but... The fact that you are safe enough to do that, you know, and, and that he has been this constant for you. You know, I always want this for the people in my life that have had these stories. I want it for myself, too, someday. But this healing love. Yes. And we don't wait for the healing love to heal us. We do our work. Yes. And when we do our work, we're better able to identify the healing love, even if it's like, we go kicking and screaming because of the fear that exists in our nervous system. It may not be in reality with this person, but it's like my body remembers yes. all of the past times where I thought it was love and then it turned out to be abuse. And so, you know, even I think it is a brave act to allow yourself to have an open heart um after what you've been through and watching on social media your family grow you getting married and having your kiddos and has been really beautiful and since we haven't known each other personally I like don't know the story and now knowing it and being part of it is like so beautiful because you you deserve this this is absolutely what you have always deserved um you know 
I'm never, I'm never going to be someone that's like, Ashley, you're too much because <laughs> I love me some too much. <laughs> and, you know, I am one of those, one of those too much kiddos, but also sometimes there's that message of not enough, too yes. much and not enough that keeps you in this prison. But it looks like your life has, um, the prison walls have come down and you are able to be free as yourself, the you that's always been here. Um, even so much so that you're going to be performing at the show in November. Yes. When you think about your story and you think about other women and other um, people listening, even men listening, what do you want them to know about the pain that you have been through and, and what it has given you? And, you know, what wisdom do you have to share with our listeners? There were times when I just, I couldn't see out of the pain. And I just kept going. There wasn't any specific reason. You know, I, I couldn't put a name to it. <clears throat> but if you're in a place where you can't see out of it, know that on the other side of it, somewhere, is something better than you could have imagined. I I remember what I imagined as a life, and it is so lame compared to the <laughs> one that I have now. <laughs> like, I mean, obviously there's things that you just, you don't think are going to be, uh, you know, part of your story, like, you know, sickness or, or whatever. But the good, like there is so much unfettered joy in my life. And I never had that before. I mean, even as a, as a child, like I told you, I was so bogged down in the world and everyone around me. I, I was never this happy as a child, even. So this is the first time in my life that I can experience the fullness of joy. Mm. And... I know that it sometimes just seems really futile, but it's really not. Mm -hmm. You know, it strikes me that you are such a good representation of someone who is not defined by their trauma. You know, we are talking about trauma today, but that is not your life that you're living. Your life that you're living is unfettered joy, and I hear the love you have for your children, and yes, of course, they are perfect, just as mine are. In their imperfections, they are beautiful, the best, and that also, you know, and when I think about those really, really dark times, you know, when you had suicidal thoughts, that version of you did not know that this could exist. And if she had, she would have known to keep going. And thank the heavens, thank the universe, thank God, whatever, that you just kept going. You just kept not giving up. Yeah. And I think that's such an important message. And, you know, I haven't found my forever love, and I don't even know if that exists for me. But I have found... Um, in healing my own trauma from abusive relationships that my life has become much more magical than I ever thought it could be 
and that's without a relationship you know that's in my career and with my beautiful children and with the experiences and the people I get to meet and and you know we need people to have this message that if you can just hold on and keep going knowing that there are other people that have been there that are there that you're not alone that you may turn the page of the story of your book to find magic and miracles and joy and happiness but you got to keep going you got to keep reading you got to keep writing your story yes um when i was a part of the waco poet society back in the day um the woman that ran it genuine she used to say all the time there's magic in your me too mm-hmm. and it's one of my favorite thoughts still and it's true because when you share your story people see pieces of themselves and they go oh wait I'm not alone and every time someone realizes they're not alone like you created a spark Mm -hmm. so many of us and especially with like COVID and quarantine and pandemic like feel just like we're by ourselves we're just out here trying to do the thing with no help with no one and that people don't know what it's like to be like us, but we do. Mm-hmm. And it's a really hard and it's a really vulnerable thing to open up and to share your story. But when you do, you give other people permission to live authentically. That is 100% true and 100% the spirit of this podcast and why you are here. You know, this is not therapy, but this is healing work. I think both for us in sharing and in telling, but for the sparks that will be lighting up all over the place as people are listening to this. And, you know, we find these sparks of light in the midst of the trauma. You know, when we share the trauma, which, you know, is sad, is terrible, all of the things, that's not the point to stay in the sad, the terrible, the all of the things. It's the spark of the me too and that healing. And I'm such a believer in when you heal, those around you are able to heal. Yes. Um, and so, Ashley, I'm just so grateful for you today, for you sharing. Um, I love you just as much as I knew I would. <laughs> Maybe even a little bit more because we need to sing some show tunes, I feel like. Yes. Um, that's the, me before I became a psychologist, I was a vocal performance major at a conservatory for, until my senior year of college. So it's my hidden talent that Waco doesn't know about, but, um, I know that we will be with each other again. Um, and I want to celebrate this beautiful life with you and, I'm just so grateful for your honesty and bravery. And I'm so grateful that you kept going. Because you absolutely deserve this life, just as those of us that uh, are listening and relating and being sparked by it also deserve this. And that's why we keep going. You know, we got stories to tell. We got stories to keep writing. So thank you so much for being here today. I, I so appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, listeners, I hope you are as blessed as I am by this amazing woman and her story and her courage 
her courage to have this big heart and allow it to be open to all of the beauty and joy and love that she now gets to experience. And I hope it serves as inspiration for us as we go about our weeks to come. I look forward to catching you next time as we have another bold and brave and badass woman of Waco here with us sharing her story. Until then, be blessed. Bye. Follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Emma J. Church for updates and podcast schedule. Catch the show on your favorite podcast platform or at roguemedianetwork.com. has been a Rogue Media Podcast.